Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. Just a few words before we start. Well, I talked a little last week about how much I'm loving our deal with Stamps.com. You know what it's about? It's that with the Internet, we're now in this on-demand era. You know, like this podcast, you can listen to it whenever's good for you. Now, going to the post office, it just doesn't make sense. They're only open so many hours. It's hugely time-consuming just to go there. But you can get your postage on demand with Stamps.com. Anything you can do at the post office, you can now do right from your desk. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. Anytime, 24-7. And I'm still in this, oh my God, this is so much fun phase with this. I mean, I'm sending little present packages to friends just because it's so easy and this little digital scale they include for determining the exact amount is so nifty so right now use our promo code r-i-s-k for this special offer it's a no risk trial plus a hundred and ten dollars bonus offer that includes the digital scale and up to fifty five dollars of free postage don't wait go to stamps.com before you do anything else Click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in R-I-S-K. That's stamps.com. Enter R-I-S-K. We're going to hear the Charlie Watts riots doing the theme today. Now here's the show. This is Risk, 
the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Bee vs. Moth behind me now. And if that opening theme sounded rather live to you just now, it's because today's episode is live from the beautiful Linda Theater in Albany, New York. A little while back, we had a Risk fan named Jamie Thompson who contacted us. She said, I want to bring Risk to Albany. And she was a dream. She introduced us to so many artists and musicians and teachers and and, uh, actors. It was just an amazing community we found up there in Albany. Beautiful town. And the second I stepped off that stage, I grabbed Jamie and I said, we want to come back here as soon as possible. And so we are. We're coming back to Albany on September 8th, 2012, and we're bringing the brilliant Mr. Dave Hill, one of the funniest comedians I know, is going to be with us on September 8th. So if you're anywhere near Albany, you gotta get there. It's a blast. But this time, we're sticking around the next day on the 9th through the storystudio.org. We're teaching a one-day workshop in storytelling, so join us there, too. In the meantime, let's listen to the last time we were in Albany. As I mentioned before, we had the amazing The Charlie Watts Riots Band helping us out in between. And the first story we have here comes from a lovely lady named Chrissy Swanson. We call her story For the Love never had a musical intro before. It's exciting. I moved here uh, in 2006, straight out of school, all by myself. I'm originally from Philadelphia, and I moved from Potsdam, New York, so the boonies. Um, and I moved here, and I, I work in a really like corporate environment, so I spent my days like trying to figure out how to deal with that. And I work with engineers, so it's massive awkwardness um, all day long. And then at night, my I was um, spending most of my nights waiting for a phone call from my fiance at the time who was serving in Iraq. So it was a pretty lonely existence, and I decided that I really need a pet. Because like, the hardest part for me was just when you come in the door, and like it's just silent. There's like, nothing going on. So I was like, I'm going to get a pet. So cats were out because I have allergies. Dogs are high maintenance. Um, fish are boring. And I was like, and everything else that's fuzzy really smells like ass. And I just didn't want to clean up poop all the time. So um, I, after a bunch of research, I decided to get a peach-faced lovebird. Um, it's about a three-inch tall parrot. doesn't talk, really, just squawks. Um, so I drove to Williamsport, Pennsylvania to pick up this bird. Um, and when Lou and I, my bird's name is Lou, when we had our first encounter, um, the breeder opened the door. And uh, most lovebirds are like a really vibrant splash of green and red. Lou is dull gray with like a little rainbow across the top of her head. And as um, she's opening the cage door, the breeder says to me in this like really nasty kind of tone, she's like, I'm really sorry that like she's not more exciting. She's really not pretty at all. Like you don't have to take her if you don't want to. And at that moment, Lou jumped into the palm of my hand and, like, looked up at me and went, like, what? Like, like, almost like, well, do you want me? And I was like, oh, my God, I'm in love with you, like, immediately in love. So Lou and I have had, you know, this strange little relationship ever since. Um, on the car ride home from that, it's like a three-hour, four-hour car drive, I kept being like, are you okay? Are you all right? And she would just be like, what? Like, back, and, like, we had, like, a conversation the whole time. 
So I was all excited about it. And Lou has, like, even as she's gotten older, turned into, like, more of a quirky bird, which really fits with me being a quirky person. Like, she has this, it's a disease, actually, that um, kills most birds in four months. She's had it for five years. She's like, oh, hell no. Um, She's got, it makes her beak grow crooked, so she's got this, like, goofy underbite. (laughs) Like, she's gray. She's a strange little bird. But she's pretty tough, because, like, she's figured out how to deal with this illness she has. It's not bird flu, so everybody can not worry about staying clear of me. Um, It's beak and feather syndrome, so you have to have both a beak and feathers. But there was a time, though, that I thought for sure that, like, I'm going to lose her because it was the winter of 2009, I guess, and they were calling for snow, and we were really excited about it, my husband and I, because it was like, oh, well, you know how it is up here. Like, the only thing that shuts us down is, like, significant snow. So I was excited, and we went to bed that night, like, pajamas on inside out, cotton balls in the freezer, like the, everything that you could possibly do for good snow. Um, and we woke up <laughs> and uh, we woke up in the middle of the night to like this like thunderous crash and that like eerie silence when the power goes out and you know the entire town is out. Um, so we went and looked out the window and like the whole place was just covered in this gorgeous sheet of ice. It was that, that kind that like looks like everything's encased in, in glass. So we're kind of excited about it because we're like, yes, ice. Now we're definitely not having to go to work because that'll definitely shut everything down. But the next morning we got a notice on the door from National Grid that said your power will not be restored for three days. And we were like, okay, well, this isn't that big of a deal. But then all of a sudden we looked at each other and we're like, Lou. Lou cannot survive under 50 degrees for more than three hours. Um, and the, the temperature in our apartment at that point was 67 degrees. So I was like, oh, my God, like, we're in big trouble. So we're like, all right, that's fine. Like, we'll heat her up. There's got to be ways to do this. So we started with, like, blankets over the cage, and, like, that wasn't really working, and she was not having that. She was squawking like crazy. And then, so I run to the, th- like, every time I'm like, we do something, it doesn't work, I run to the thermostat. And I'm like, look, and I'm like, okay, 62. So then we decided we got those, like, crushable heating packets that you put like on the um in your shoes when you're like skiing we put those in there and i'm like yes like that's gonna produce heat we're gonna yell set all of a sudden i just hear like and i look over she's making a nest out of them (laughs) and like looking at us like wow these are great guys like this is really gonna keep my eggs warm thanks um so that didn't work and uh by that point it's like 57 degrees and so then we tried surrounding her cage with candles because it seemed both safe and effective. Um, but every time she would fly, like, from a perch to another perch, the candles would blow out. And, and she just still looked, like, really excited about that, really happy. Like, look, guys, look what I can do. Not cool. Um, so finally, we decided, at this point, it's, like, 52 degrees, and we're like, oh, crap. Like, we've got to get to backup heat. So we called some hotels and that were really close to us, no power anywhere. So we started down, like, Route 9 from, we lived in Clifton Park at the time. Um, we... <laughs> We drove from Clifton Park down Route 9 and stopped at every hotel. And Lou has, like, a squawk that she does specifically for me. I say it sounds like mom. Um, like, but so we stop at the first hotel, and I get out of the car, and she's like, Mom? 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 And, like, kind of excited or whatever. And I get back in, and, oh, there's no, no power there either, or no rooms. So we keep going. We get, went to about ten hotels. By the time we got to the last hotel, I get out of the car, and she's like, Mom? Mom, it's like a, it's a distinct whine, and I'm like, oh my god, she's gonna die. We're gonna lose her. She's gonna die. So finally, at the last hotel that we went to, I said, I asked the lady at the desk. I was like, is there? Have you heard that anybody has rooms? And she said, well, there's one hotel that does. It's the Crown Plaza in Albany. So I'm like, all right, great. It's now it should be noted the Crown Plaza is not a cheap hotel. 
um, like $200 a night on a typical night, um, and, I, and like a really strict no pets policy. But I was like, oh, how hard can it be to sneak in a three-inch bird, right? Really freaking hard, <laughs> it turns out. Um, so the entrance to the hotel there is like valet style. There's no back doors or anything. Like you pull up, and like there's an entrance with smiling employees just waiting to take your bags from you. Um, so I took, like, she had, like, a little cage that I brought, and I shoved that under my coat, and I went in, like, trying not to make eye contact at all, acting like this is not, you know, I have nothing with me. Why would, why would you think that? We got into the line of, like, 50 people checking in. So I, I stand there, and I'm like, oh, God, this is going to take so long. And they had evacuated Siena College. So behind us in line was, like, an entire sorority and we're so I'm sitting there with like the bird in my coat, and there was this girl right behind us that had like, the, she was flirting with a guy that was there too. And every time he would say something, she'd go ah! like that, and she would do that, and Lou would go wah, 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 like so loud. And I'm like trying to, oh my god, please shut up, please shut up, like glaring at this girl because <laughs> reveal the bird in my coat. But really, can I criticize her? I've got a bird in my coat. So finally make it up to the desk, and thankfully Lou shut her beak for that amount of time. I don't know why, but I I checked in and everything, and I thought, like, great, I'm finally going to have relief. This is going to be awesome. And I was pretty excited because they had lowered the rates for the night, and so I was like, great, a luxury hotel. And so we get in the elevator, and it's full of people. And I think, great, we're all right. And Lou starts squawking, like, louder than anything. Like, she does, like, it's the kind that, like, pierces straight through your eardrums and you think, like, went through your brain um, to the other side. And she starts really, really loud. And most of the adults in the elevator are, like, they seem to realize, like, this is kind of a strange situation. Everybody's uncomfortable. Um, But I look down, and there's, like, standing right in front of me, this, like, seven-year-old boy. (laughs) He's looking up at me, like... (laughs) I just stared out, and he's like what do you have in your coat? I was like, nothing. And then he's, he's like, I think you might have a bird in your coat. And then I do that like really like, no, why would I? Like overly astonished, overcompensating facial expression to him. And I, I said to him, I was like, what, why would you say that? And he's like, well, cause it's chirping and it's really loud. And I don't know what came over me, but in like this moment, I usually don't come up with quick answers, but it was like a little bird came down from heaven and told me, like, say, it's your cell phone. So I was like, oh, it's my cell phone. He's like, well, aren't you going to answer it? And just as that happened, it was like, ding, ding, and the doors opened, and I got into the hotel room, and Lou apparently thought, like, this is awesome, because I let her out of her cage, and she was flying all around. She's, like, hopping on the bed and shitting on things (laughs) nonstop. And then she flew into, like, the bathroom, which was pretty big, got up on top, on the top rung of the, the shower curtain rod, and just, like, stood there yelling until I went in and was like, great, look, yes, you made it up high, good job, good job getting up high, and, like, walking away. But we made it through the night, we did not get kicked out of the hotel, and then we went to, the next morning, I'm walking through the lobby, and we're leaving to go to a friend's house, and um, the same little boy was there, and I just was all like, yes! So I saw him, and as I walked by, I was like, and I like opened my coat and, I sh- and the bird cage was there and he was like oh! and he started jumping up and down and pulling on his mom and pointing but that, by that point when she looked we had vanished my phantom bird lady had, had vanished um, and then we, we made it out and, and safe and sound and Lou is still alive and well and squawking at inopportune moments as loudly as possible in a house with a backup generator so we will never have to sneak her in ever again but she's not grateful which she should be
everyone. That was so much fun. And Chrissy found us through the podcast. So super fun. Um, now I've made a mental note that people in Albany think that if you wear your pajamas inside out and put cotton balls in the freezer, it will snow. <laughs> All right, our next storyteller is a brilliant and super accomplished artist. Please welcome Mr. Michael Oatman. Charlie Watts Riots, everybody. Give it up. And Kevin Allison. So I have to apologize. That was a much jauntier run-up to the mic uh, than this story deserves. Um, uh, how many people remember meeting the person who would become their very best friend? Right? Okay. About half the people. And how many of you remember meeting the person who would become the darkest influence in your life? Actually, more people. Okay, then you'll like this. Um, this is a story about friendship and betrayal. It's a story also about um, trust and my uh, dangerously high levels of optimism that course through my bloodstream. Um, so it's 1986 and I'm just about to graduate from the Rhode Island School of Design. Thank you. Um, Rhode Island or maybe school, somebody whooped for. Um, <laughs> Uh, but I, 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 I'm graduating with a nearly worthless degree in painting. Um, and my parents are very proud. Uh, and I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do next. And it seems to come down to two options. I'm either going to move in with my parents um, or try to get a job that I hate. And I hadn't thought much more beyond that. But somehow over the summer, I managed to get a position as the teaching fellow, the art teaching fellow at a place called Phillips Academy, which is one of the most, I guess, prestigious prep schools in the country. So late summer of 86, I borrow a truck and I load all of my stuff up into this truck and I drive to Andover, Massachusetts to start this new job where my duties are teaching five art classes a day, coaching JV baseball, and running a dormitory of 24 kids along with a longtime Phillips employee who's been there for 10 years in the dorm, and then a guy who's come up that year with me, um, who's the football coach, a guy named Leon. So Chris and Leon and me are running the Bartlett Dormitory. My apartment stretches the length of this very long dorm, uh, so when you come up to the North Landing, the only place you can go is into my room, and if you come up the South Landing, the only place you can go is into my kitchen. So I decide in what now like seems a monumental miscalculation of trust to have an open door policy. And I'm going to leave my doors open 24 hours a day for these 24 kids that I don't know to come in and speak with me about their problems. And it turns out they have a lot of problems. They have <laughs> questions about drinking and about drugs, not like how to get them, but how, like what to do in these situations. They had questions about sex, you know, why doesn't this girl like me? Or they would come in and say, Oatman, I think I might be straight. Or, um, <laughs> wait for it. And, um, but mostly, and this is the sad part, they had a lot of questions about why, why don't my parents like me? They ship me off for 10 months of the year to a school, and this has been happening for 14 or 15 years. And there was a lot of insecurity about who they were and why they were at this place. And as one teacher explained to me, these were the kids 
who would graduate and eventually go on to run the country. So I don't have a lot in common with these kids. I mean, one of the kids in my dorm is the son of the Aga Khan, who is the spiritual leader of six million people. And another kid is a guy named Sajay Adu, who's Sharday's nephew, right, the singer Sharday. And then a lot of the rest of the kids are just kind of normal kids who come from extremely wealthy backgrounds, except for one kid in the dorm named John Williams. And it turns out John and I have a lot in common. John's from Vermont, I'm from Vermont. We're both from squarely middle-class kind of backgrounds. We felt out of place there. And also because he was a fifth-year student, what they called a post-grad, he was doing a fifth year of high school to get his SAT scores up, to study Russian as a language so he could get into a better school, and also because he was a gifted basketball player, maybe one of the greatest basketball players Vermont had ever produced, which maybe is like being the tallest midget in the room. I don't, I don't know. So to give you an example of the kind of kid that they had there, um, uh, and this is zooming forward to almost uh, late spring, uh, one of the kids got a cut in his hand and I had to drive him to the infirmary. And I said to him, so Sean, what are, what are your plans? And he was a sophomore and he said, well, I'm thinking, you know, after Phillips, I'm going to go to Harvard for literature and then maybe Yale for, for law. And then I'd like to work for a multinational corporation, maybe practicing in finance. And I said, actually, I was just thinking about the summer, if you were going to get a paper route or uh, get laid, I don't know. But these were kids that thought way in advance. John and I began to spend a lot of time together. I um, took him and some other kids to my studio in nearby Lawrence, Massachusetts. They thought it was a neat space. Um, kids weren't allowed to have cars on campus, so I would occasionally take them to lunch. And more often than not, the person that I was having lunch with was John Williams. And after um, kind of feeling our way around each other, John began to tell me strange things about himself. I assumed they were lies. You know, uh, I'm the son of a very famous person, but I can't tell you who that is. That's a typical liar move, right? Or, um, you know, I uh, had an affair with my high school math teacher. We used to have anal sex on her desk. I'm like, okay, John, you know, you, you, you don't have to impress me. I mean, you know, we can just have normal conversations. Um, and then he, he said one day, I've got this plan for stealing a sheriff's badge when I go home for Thanksgiving. I said, John, as your friend, I gotta say, this is a terrible idea. And as your teacher, you can't tell me stuff like this because I'm kind of duty bound to tell somebody, you know, more authoritative than me about this. So he's like, oh, forget about it. I said, okay, let's just, you know, I know it's, you're all bullshit, so let's just forget about that. So a couple weeks go by and I'm playing in a pickup baseball game behind my dormitory Bartlett. It's not a baseball field, it's just a, a big lawn. And I hit a fly ball into a deep right field, the infielder playing kind of close. And this legitimate single, I tried to turn into a double. So I'm rounding first, and I'm gunning for second base, and I dive Pete Rose style. And the next thing I know, I wake up in my bed, and my pillow is covered with blood. And it turns out, what happened is that there had been a sweeping tag, I was knocked out, and the kids didn't know what to do, there weren't any other adults around. They brought me up to my bed and just tucked me in. <laughs> This is like first aid. And uh, so I, I knew that a head injury was n A, not good, and the proof of that was the puddle of blood. And so I had a, another faculty member drive me to the hospital, and the doctor said, well, you know, you've, you've broken your eardrum, uh, you've got a concussion, you've got a lot of bruising on your head and neck, um, you're probably going to have some hearing loss, but if we 
get on this quickly with this medication, I think we can minimize the damage. So, you know, he gave me a month's worth of prescriptions and I started taking this medicine. And about two weeks later, I go into my uh, apartment uh, through the north door and I see that a table, my writing table, which is usually against the wall near my bed, has been moved into the center of the room. There's a chair in front of it, so, okay. And on it, there's a napkin and a little mound. Does this help these? Uh, there's a little mound of white powder. You know, and I'm thinking, okay, the students know I don't drink and they know I don't do drugs. Oh, okay, this is like, you know, Mike Oatman, cocaine addict, you know, like, this is what this is all about. So I clean it off and I go about my business. A couple days later, I get a knock on the door and it's John Williams. John says, hey, how's it going? I said, fine, John, what's going on? He said, you never said anything about my joke. I said, what are you talking about, John? He's like, you know, the, the powder on the chair. And I was like, oh, right, right, the cocaine. Yeah, it was funny, you know. And he's like, did you put everything back together? I said, what are you talking about? He's like, you know, your medicine. I emptied out your capsules and I put them in a, a pile. And, and I went into the bathroom, into the vanity, and I took out the little amber bottle, you know, and got the lid off. And there were three capsules left. And I opened the first one, nothing. Second one, nothing. Third one, nothing. So I'm chilled, right? You know, I say, John, this is, this is a big problem. You know, uh, I'm taking this medication because of this head injury, and uh, I've got to report this. And he said, no, no, don't do that. Listen, I'll pay for the medication. I was like, John, that's not the point. You know, I've been taking for three weeks now placebos, empty medication. We've got to go see the dean of students. He's like, no, no, let's not do that. And I said, John, either come with me right now and you can explain yourself, or you can just take whatever the fallout is from our conversation that we have separately. So he comes with me, and it turns out that John's punishment, and this is like mid-October, for the rest of the semester, he can only be in his dorm room, in the cafeteria, in the library, class, or at practice. He's banned from competing in some games, and he has to be in bed an hour and a half earlier than everybody else. And this is like, you know, second only to being expelled in terms of the worst things that can happen. And then begins the silent treatment. So for the next month and a half, the next month, whenever John sees me, he goes the other way. Or for passing on the stairs in the dorm, he kind of looks up. Or when I start talking to him, he ignores me. And this is a kid who's maybe 6'3", very handsome. I think of like a, an athletic Cary Grant, that's possible. Um, slightly curly black hair, big black eyebrows black eyes, is a handsome kid, and he can be very charming, but during the silent treatment, he can be chilling. And I began to get very afraid of John Williams. So it's a couple weeks before the Christmas break, and I finally go to him one day, just out of sheer exasperation. I say, John, I know you're disappointed with me, but I'm disappointed with you. The difference is, is that your actions have now compromised my health forever. And I, to this day, I have about... 40% hearing in this year. And I said, you know, we can either keep doing this for the rest of the year or we can start over and say that we both made a mistake and we both violated each other's trust. And weirdly, he said that was a good idea. So a couple of days later, he comes to my room and he gives me a box. And inside the box is a sheriff's badge. And I know what's happening because this is John saying, you know, 
I told you I was going to do this earlier, now I'm trusting you with the story. But he's also saying, this is a test, right? Are you going to turn me in again? And we started having our conversations again at lunch, and one day he tells me two things. He's like, I want to figure out a way to cheat death. <laughs> and then he says, as a follow-up, or maybe this is research, uh, he says, I want to know what it would be like to kill another human being. And of course, now I'm like, I got to tell somebody about this. Or maybe it's still his bullshit, because he had said other things, like he had stolen the championship banner for his basketball team from his high school. There was the sex incident with his teacher, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm the son of a famous person. So I'm hoping that it's just all bullshit. The winter break happens, everybody goes home for Christmas, and in the spring, uh, when spring sport competitions start occurring again, there's a rash of thefts in the high school gymnasium in the visiting team lockers. So visiting teams are coming and competing and things are disappearing like jerseys, hats, watches, wallets. And I think it's John, but I don't have any evidence. And there's a couple of kids that have been hanging around with him who seem really kind of cowed by his presence. So I don't know what to do about it. I keep this information to myself. And then we get to April of 1987, almost 25 years ago to this week. And there's a story that hits the school newspaper, the Andover newspaper, the regional newspapers about a break-in at the um, uh, gymnasium in the athletic director's office where two brand new computers still in the box have been stolen, where the person or persons who broke in urinated on the walls and on the keyboards and somebody took a big dump on a keyboard and kind of wrote some words on the wall and feces and trashed the place. And I'm thinking, I'm a master detective because I know who this is. But I'm still a little bit scared about John Williams. So I go to my uh, co-dorm directors and I say, I think it's John. I'm gonna tell you everything I know about him. And I'm chastised a little bit because I've kept all this information back, but I thought it was mostly bullshit. Leon, the football coach, takes his key and goes into John's room and we find a bunch of stolen material from visiting teams. So now we know it's John Williams. He's called in by the dean, the very same dean who earlier last semester had reprimanded him, you know, at my reporting. And the local police are brought in, the state police. And when John sort of gleefully confesses that he's done all these things, yeah, he's responsible. He also reveals that the two computers that were stolen were taken into New Hampshire and sold. So it's crossed state lines and now the FBI is involved. So during the interview with the local police and the state police, they finish up. I'm asked to be in the room for some reason. John's uh, escorted out and as he's leaving, the detective taps him on the shoulder and says, John, can I have it back? And John reaches into his jacket and pulls out this nice pen that he's taken from the interviewing police officer. And he turns to me and he smiles. And in a monumental miscalculation of judgment, I'm asked to drive him home to his mom in Vermont. I guess because we're both from Vermont and it'll be a nice trip. But he's got to know that I'm the guy that turned him in. Okay, postscript one. It's the summer. Haven't seen John, haven't heard from him. I'm asked to stay on to coach baseball and to teach a visual studies course for the summer. And one of the kids comes running into my apartment and says, Oatman, you got to come see this. 
and he takes me out back behind the Bartlett dormitory to the very same fields where I was playing baseball and got injured. And there, in 15-foot-high letters, spelling out my last name, Oatman, on the grass, is, it's made from my own clothing. So I run back into the apartment, and I look in my closet, and sure enough, all my clothing's gone. A Hamilton watch from the 30s is missing, and an audio cassette, if you know what those are, right? Um, that I listen to every night for two years, one side or the other. Brian Eno's Apollo or Roger Eno's The Pearl. This is what I listen to to fall asleep. Is also missing. It's like John has taken the most personal things from my apartment, and it's his way of saying, Oatman, I can get you anytime I want. Postscript number two. It's 1999, and I'm coming back from a trip to Morocco. I'm at JFK waiting to pick up my luggage. I'm at luggage, you know, uh, conveyor belt A, and I can see across to B, and I can see across to C. And there's a guy standing there. And it seems like I recognize him somehow. But he's different, and it's taking me a minute to put it together. And then I realize, okay, he's a little older. His hair's less curly. And he's a little heavier, but it's John Williams. And as I'm standing there, look at him. Eventually, he's looking around, and he gets bored, and he looks across the way, and he sees me looking at him. And we have one of those moments where we're both kind of caught in each other's gaze. But I can tell that he hasn't figured it out yet. About a minute later, my bags come around, and I grab them, and I put them down, and I stare right at him, and I mouth the words, Hi, John. And I turn, and as I'm leaving, I can see that he finally gets who it is. But he's got to wait for his bag, so he can't run up to me to say, hey, how's it going? Or, wasn't that weird? Or, um, or knife me. Um, okay. Postscript, and last postscript number three. It's 2004, and friends start to call me reporting on an obituary of John Henry Williams, son of legendary baseball player Ted Williams, who's just died of leukemia at age 35, I think. The splendid splinter, Ted Williams, was the only person to bat 400, you know, in the history of professional baseball. And his son, his estranged son, made up with him in 1996 and kind of took the family sports memorabilia business away from his stepbrothers and stepsisters. Um, and negotiated, uh, after his dad died in 2002, a contract with the Alcor life extension company in Arizona to preserve Ted Williams's head in cryonic suspension. And now John's own head is going to go to Alcor as well. So I can't prove that John Henry Williams is my John Williams. They look alike. They have the same birthdays. They had the same kind of legacy and, and similar ability. I mean, John spent the last years of his life playing in minor league baseball, I think batting about 149, not having a great career, but wanting to be close to his dad in some way. And even though I can't prove that it's him, I check my closet every night just to be sure. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Well, if that's John Williams' head suspended in the Cairo whatever, 
Then who wrote the music to Jaws? More questions than answers come out of that one. Uh, our next storyteller has the only stand-up comedy radio show in town. Uh, he's had me on a couple of times. A wonderful guy. Please wel- oh, The show is Alternative to Sleeping. Please welcome Mr. Ethan Ullman. <laughs> Hey, how's it going? <laughs> this is a great show. I just want to give a shout out to every performer so far. This is really cool. <laughs> All right, so um, my story starts a couple years ago. Um, a, f- a couple friends and I were driving past a Wendy's, and I'm not going to say which Wendy's it is, but <laughs> let's say it's the one across the street from a college called Mudson Mally Mimmunity Mollage. <laughs> So it's, uh, it's, it's me, Mike, and Sarah. We're driving by, and we noticed that the sign out front was broken, their neon sign. It normally said, old-fashioned hamburgers, but it was broken, so it said, old-fashioned hamboo. And <laughs> the word hamboo just really resonated with us. And, and I came up with the phrase, y'all got hamboo? And y'all got hambu for the 15-minute ride home. We were just saying it over and over and over. Y'all got hambu? Y'all got hambu? Y'all got hambu? We, we decided that, that y'all got hambu was just such an amazing phrase that it needed to be shared with, the, 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 with Wendy's. So, um, so we got the phone number for Wendy's, and uh, I called them up, and uh, they're like, Hello, Wendy's. Uh, y'all got hambu? Excuse me? Y'all got hambu? click. <laughs> um, and, and it was just really funny, so we kept doing it. Uh, and, and we kept doing it over and over and over, um, multiple times a day. Each of us were doing it on our own phones, and it, it just, it was hilarious. Uh, it got to the point where, where they, they knew what we were going to say. As soon as we said y'all, they would just hang up. Um, but it was still hilarious, and it, but we wanted to get the y'all got hambu out of there, so so uh, we started calling up with with different things first. So I'd call up and I'd say, "Hi, Wendy's. Um, how much is it for an extra slice of American cheese?" Oh, um, y'all got hambu, and uh, they they were not happy. Uh, Hi, do you guys have uh, veggie burgers? No, um, y'all got hambu. Uh, they they were getting thoroughly pissed. Um, and, and then I thought it would be funny if I asked them a more complicated question. So I, I would call up and I'd say, hi, um, now how much sodium is in your large order of fries? And, and they'd put the phone down and three minutes would go by. Uh, obviously they had to go in some handbook and look it up. Um, oh, um, now y'all got hambu? And <laughs> these people were getting really mad and, and it was just so funny. We started telling our friends. So, you know, uh, three people calling a couple times a day turned into 10 people calling 30 to 40 times a week. Uh, they were getting really mad and I, I thought it was time to, to move into phase two. Um, so phase two, um, at this point, they didn't know what we looked like. They, they just were getting phone calls. They didn't know what our car looked like. So we waited until... Um, they, they closed the restaurant and just the drive-thru was open. 
So we, we, we drive up slowly and, and we order like a hamburger, french fries, drink. We, we drive, drive through and we pay the lady. Uh, she hands us the food and, and I, I say to her, I'm like, you know, I used to work in fast food. I know how difficult it is at night and, you know, this is really fast. I love you guys. So here, I handed her a folded up dollar bill. She smiled, she took it, she thanked me. Uh, but little did she know, uh, before we folded up that dollar bill, in a Sharpie, I wrote, y'all got hamboo. <laughs> So <laughs> we know what's coming, and, and we, we we're just slowly driving past, staring at her. And, you know, she's happy. She's, you know, she's like, she's got a little extra pep in her step, and she's just smiling. And, and we see her um, unfold the dollar bill, and she just tenses up. <laughs> and she's right next to the counter. She leaps over the counter, lands on her feet, runs to the door. She makes eye contact with me. And she's banging and yelling. We couldn't hear what she was saying. Uh, so uh, how this, this restaurant is set up, you have to drive all the way around the restaurant again to get out. Um, so as we start driving faster, and by the time we pass the drive through window, her and two other employees are wedged out of the window. Ah, screw you guys! Ah, F you! Screaming at us. That was hilarious to us. And uh, we continued the, the phone calls. Uh, but their responses, instead of just hanging up, they, they would stay on the phone, and they got vicious. One person was like, yeah, I just banged your mom last night. Uh, another guy uh, told me he, he wished I would get AIDS uh, and die. Um, it was getting quite vicious. And, and after about another week of those kind of calls, uh, we decided it was time for phase three. So, um, so we went to a grocery store, and we got a day-old birthday cake, and we got a, a frosting gun. And um, my friend Sarah, she, um, she, she wrote on it, uh, y'all got hamboo. <laughs> so we, we waited for the restaurant to close, uh, so just the drive-thru was open. And uh, we waited, for, you know, so they, so they would just be at the drive-thru. Uh, we parked a little bit further away, and I snuck up. And I put the, the birthday cake right outside the, the exit. And I snuck back, and we went, and we parked in this parking lot that was kind of overlooking, so we could still see in. We could see the people. And um, I called them up. I acted nervous. Uh, so, um, uh, hi. I, 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 just, I just got home. Uh, I was at your, your restaurant, and I can't find my wallet anywhere. Um, did you guys find a wallet? I, you know, I think I might have left it there. And she, she's very nice. She's like, I'm oh, sir, sir. Um, and we haven't found anything. Let me go talk to a couple employees. We see her put the phone down. She walks in the back, and uh, she's obviously asking some employees. She comes back. You know, no one saw anything. It's not in the lost and found. You know, I'm really sorry, sir. And I was like, ah. You know, I was sitting near the soda fountain. Maybe it's underneath uh, the booth I was sitting at. And she's like, oh, well, let me go check. We see her go over. She kind of, like, glances under. She gets on her hands and knees, and she starts, like, reaching around looking for it. She comes back, and she's like, sir, you know, I just looked, and I know we, we, had, we swept earlier. No one found anything. I'm really sorry. I don't, I don't think your, your wallet's here. And I said, well, geez, you know, like, I've got money in there. I've got my credit cards. I've got my, my, my driver's license. Oh, man. Oh, you know what? I keep my wallet in the same pocket uh, that I keep my car keys. Maybe when I took my keys out of my pocket in the parking lot, my wallet fell out. And she's like, oh, well, I'll, I can go check. So she puts the phone down, and we see her, like, kind of walking to the door. And then she notices out, out of the glass door that there's something. She, she kind of, like, stops and kind of walks out. And uh, she, she leans down, and she sees the cake, and she reads it. She, poof, 
kicks it, runs over to the phone. Fuck you, motherfucker, you piece of shit, you handboo bullshit. You have to deal with this shit all the time. Screaming at me. <laughs> I have to give it up for my friends because they were, it was on speaker and they were silent the whole time. We just burst out laughing and we could see her just flipping out, throwing stuff. It, it was amazing. <laughs> and uh, so we, we, we toned it down after that. We still we called a little bit, but it, it eventually kind of died off, and, and we stopped calling, and we, we kind of lost interest in it. Um, and then I'd say a couple months later, uh, I get a phone call from my friend Sarah. She goes, my, my friend um, is working at Wendy's. I knew what she was talking about. And I'm like, okay. And she's like, y- y- are you sitting down? I'm like, no. So sit down. So I sat down, and... Um, Apparently, her friend uh, is now working at the Wendy's, and although we haven't called them in months, they're still getting calls about y'all got hamburger. <laughs> and it turns out that it, it just it resonated with them so much that on their days off, they call in <laughs> to fuck with the people who are working there. So <laughs> this legacy, and I, I think the greatest part. Uh, about the whole thing is that th- they never knew that it, why we were saying it. It was from the broken sign. And, and I, I know a, a, a newspaper, um, when uh, President Obama came to speak, they actually criticized Wendy's for not having a, a working sign. But they, they have fixed it. The, the sign is fixed. It says old-fashioned hamburgers once again. But I still call them every once in a while. So when I get them on the phone, I go, Y'all got hamboo? Ergers? Thank you, guys. Ethan Allman, everyone. Uh, I want to bring up our last storyteller for the night, and he's a participant in a storytelling show up here. I forget the name of the storytelling show up here. The Front Parlor series. Such a wonderful, so I've heard some wonderful recordings from the Front Parlor series, so definitely check that out. Uh, please welcome Mr. Gregor Winnichuk. When I was 16, I didn't exactly have it going on with the ladies. Um, I didn't have it going on in any area of my life, like at all, but the, the ladies were of particular interest to me because at the time, I was riding a tsunami of hormones. And I was plagued by boners. Plagued by them. I can remember around this time, I'd be in math class. I, was, I took this, um, I don't know, probably ninth or 10th grade math class or whatever, and uh, this girl, Denise, would come in and sit down in front of me, and the scent of her hair would provoke this raging hard-on that the, the hard-on was bigger than my cock. I mean, it was fucking painful, and it went on for 50 minutes, the whole math class. 
until I, I, I was kind of trapped by it and until I perfected this move where I would pull my math books up off the desk as I was getting up and I'd press them in my crotch and then like, you know, go on about my business. And I was getting no action whatsoever. The closest I'd had to, like, having sex or being with anyone was uh, one time Melissa Wilson called me up out of the blue, apropos of nothing, was like, hey, Gregor, um, why don't you come over? My parents, uh, they're not around. And, and uh, why don't you come over to my house, like, in this kind of really sexy, inviting way? And I fucking ran out the door, <laughs> ran over to Melissa Wilson's house, and was jumped by her football player boyfriend and who beat the crap out of me on their neighbor's lawn. Like, right? I mean, so I've, I, I, it, was, it was sucky. And I don't, know, I don't know what I ever did to Melissa Wilson to provoke that, that thing, but it's kind of brought up some trust issues with, with, uh, <laughs> with, with promises of sex. So I get another invitation around this time frame from this girl, Jessica, who lived on my street. And uh, I, had, I had learned to steer clear of her because she was, she was trouble. You know, she was manipulative and pathological and at this point in her life was a raging alcoholic and had recently got herself thrown out of school and for whatever reason was having a party uh, at, you know, at her parents' house that afternoon. Her parents, like, ran a store, so they were away. And she's like, oh, you should come over. Some friends from mine from my new school are coming over. And I was like, I don't, I don't have any other plans exactly, so why not? Maybe I'll meet some people. Um, so I go over there, and Jessica is there in her kitchen um, holding court with these three um, three girls, like, kind of rockers. Um, I was guessing they were Joan Jett fans, right? Le- black leather, jeans, feathered hair, like roach clips hanging off, you know, off their jackets. And um, the conversation quickly turns to me and the fact that I just turned 16 and uh, Jessica asked me point blank, are you still a virgin? Which she knew I was. And then, in that moment, decided, you can't go on. It, now that you're 16, you can't be a virgin anymore. Points to one of the girls and says, you got to fuck him. <laughs> so uh, I get sent downstairs with um, Charlene. I'm going to call her Charlene. I'm not doing that to protect her identity or like, you know, like I fucking never was introduced to her. I didn't know her name. And then from after what I'm about to tell you, I was never interested in talking to her ever again. Um, I imagine that like in the whole pecking order of the thing, like Charlene was the one who was trying to blend in the most and was kind of like visibly drunk when I got there. Like, I don't know what, I don't know what her deal was, but like we're downstairs now in in the basement um, together and she sits on the floor like next to the washing machine and just kind of goes really passive. Um, I go really active. Um, 
not physically, but word-wise. Like, I feel like we gotta at least establish some kind of bond, or she's gotta know something about me. So I launch into this long monologue about like how I love music, and um, have you ever heard of the band Rainbow? Because man, they are so fucking underrated. Like, oh my god, like I just went on and on about like how they're like, man, man, you really gotta check them out. Like, I'll fucking loan you one of my albums, you know? I mean, like going on and on, nonstop, pacing back and forth. Like I can't, I'm, I'm freaking out. Like it's sort of the fight or flight reflex and I couldn't fight and I, like flight was out of the question. Like I couldn't not do this because I, it was something that I wanted for a long time. And like I was also worried, like, like what would they think of me, you know, if I, if I, um, if I like ran away. So anyway, she somehow like gets me over to where she is and um, pulls me down next to her. So like um, we start kissing like and uh, that's like um, I'm just like, OK, I'm like we're kissing and we're kissing and we're kissing. And um, I didn't know like I wasn't making any moves. So finally she starts like moving my hand onto her breasts and like sort of unbuttoning my shirt and undoing her pants. And like she's moving me around like a like a storefront mannequin, just like getting all like everything, uh, getting everything going because I'm like almost paralyzed. So finally, like her pants are off. My pants are by my ankles. And it's like, okay, I guess, I guess now's the, now it's going to happen, right? It's going to happen. So I get on top of her, and I put it in her. She, she puts her hand on my chest and goes, you're in my ass. Um, and up until this point, she'd been like, she'd been like really like passive and drunk and like doing this stuff. And like, man, you can't fucking sober a person up faster than putting your cock in their ass. Like all of a sudden she was like, fucking, you know, it's like that. So, and then she goes and actually grabs a washcloth off the washing machine and she like shoves it at me. So like I, I wipe my dick off and uh, I put it in her vagina. Seven seconds later, I take it out and I ejaculate. Um, that ejaculation was followed by this just a like crushing sense of shame, which would follow all of my orgasms for the next 20 years. Um, yeah. Now... <laughs> um, I, w I felt the urge to satisfy her, right? Because I knew, I knew that that didn't, like what, what just happened seven seconds, that was not satisfying for her at all. So I decide I'm gonna go down on her, which I do, and um, I get down there and I realize I've made a horrible, horrible, horrible mistake. Um, I've subsequently learned like the proper timing for this sort of thing. But after you've ejaculated on somebody, do you, like don't fucking go down on them. Don't do that. And so then I like I come back up and I'm like, oh fuck! Like I've got my own cum on my face, and I go for the washcloth to wipe it off. Yeah, yeah, that. So. Then, like, I realize, like, what I've done, and I throw up. Like, 
and so like there's like I I had my first orgasm right like my for like with a woman and now I'm having this whole new orgasm of vomit and tears because like it's another wave of like emotion that's just coming out of me of like how like like just awful this whole thing is and um I, I'm turned away from her, and, and like, I just kind of lose myself in, like, just, like, this wave of emotion, like, just terribleness. And I kind of pull myself together, and I look over, and Charlene's gone. And, um, so then I'm, like, I'm not going back upstairs. Like, I go out through the garage and take off never to speak of this again. Up in, well, up until like a couple months ago when I told the story uh, to another open mic. But, um, the, but the host of the party, Jessica, would, would be in, in recovery in like a treatment center within a couple months from like her, her alcoholism. And they have this thing in, in, in the, the addiction community where you kind of have to hit rock bottom before you can kind of come up and put your life together again. And my sex life, I feel, started at rock bottom. <laughs> and I'm happy to report that it's, it's kind of come back up to normal. Thank you. all for this week folks this is the helio sequence with can't say no don't forget we are back at the linda theater in albany on september 8th 2012 and we have a workshop in albany from the storystudio.org the very next day september 9th we are now teaching one day storytelling for business workshops We're also uh, making workshops available to multiple students online. Up to five students can take a workshop with me. If you have a webcam and a strong connection to the Internet, check out more information about that at thestorystudio.org as well. If you're anywhere near New York, my next in-person workshop, the nine-week workshop, starts on August 7th. Our next live show in New York is August 23rd. We have Reggie Watts and Marina Franklin. Our next L.A. show is August 30th. We have Helen Hong and Danny LaBelle. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Risk Show. 
comment on us on iTunes, and support us. We really do need your support to keep this good work going at risk-show.com. Until next week, folks, remember, today is the day. Take a risk. Like some food, Polly. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty Polly. Mom. Birdie num num. Mom. Mom. Birdie num num. Birdie num num. Mom. A birdie num num. <laughs> Having the birdie num nums. Mom. Mom. Yeah, look, he's waiting for more num num. <laughs> All gone. <laughs>